I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rob Siegel, the director of the film Big Fan, in which Patton Oswalt, playing a New York Giants football fan and regular caller to sports radio, is beaten up by his favorite player on the team. Here's a clip from the film. Hematoma. The bleeding from the vein between the brain and the skull. Fortunately, we were able to successfully drain it. So I'm going to be okay? You sustained some pretty heavy trauma, but long run you should be. We do need to keep you another few days for observation. Another few days? How long have I been here? Three days. Three days. So, so the day is Sunday? Monday. How did we do? What was the score? 41-28. We gave up 41 to the Chiefs. Did Quantrell suspend it? Yeah. For how long? Game-by-game basis. I'd say it depends on the investigation. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Rob Siegel, was once upon a time the editor of the satirical newspaper The Onion, but he left that gig to become a screenwriter. After a few years of writing comedies that didn't get that far, he hit a home run with the script for the Mickey Rourke vehicle The Wrestler, which was obviously hugely critically acclaimed last year. Now he's just about to release his first writer-directorial debut. His first writer-directorial debut? Writorial. Writorial, thank you. Directorial debut. Right, you're a professional writer, so you know these kinds of things. Uh, A dark comedy, a very dark comedy uh, called Big Fan. Rob, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Jesse. It's good to be here. Let me correct you right off the bat. I don't know if it's a comedy. That might uh, set up expectations wrong. I'm a little concerned. I, I, it's more of a, uh, it's more of a drama with darkly funny things in it. There was a wide variety of reactions to the film uh, in the screening room that I was sitting in. A man who was laughing way too much, and that kind of upset me. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Some people who didn't laugh at all, and that also kind of upset me. It was a real mixed bag. <laughs> you la- but you laughed the perfect amount. Oh, absolutely, of course. <laughs> What other amount would I laugh, Rob? You have you're you're smart. Um, you were the editor of the Onion um, at a time when uh, the Onion was. I mean, it remains one of the greatest during its glory years. Is it what remains you're to say. one of the greatest things in the world, but it was certainly you know it it was during its meteoric ascent. Um, Heyday peak. What's the word you're looking for? I feel like it plateaued at some point, no, but no, I've never felt like it's gone downhill. It's still great. It's, I think it's been consistently great. But for... you, you were editor during a very exciting time when it was really becoming a force to be reckoned with in the world. Um, yeah, yeah. Why did you want to leave? Uh, you know, I'd been there for, I was there for nine years from 94 to 2003, and when you write for the onion it's it's really a full time job you, your your brain really never your brain is always in in onion mode so you process the world and everything in it through in headline form <laughs> and 
And it can just kind of drive you mad after a while. And some people are able to do it. There are people there who were there before I got there, you know, who've been doing it for 15, 20 years now. For me, nine years was kind of the limit of how how long I could push my brain to, uh, you know, in, in area man uh, mode. And I, I just needed I just needed to use a different part of my uh, my creative mind to avoid going crazy. How many headlines did you write in a given uh, week? Uh, you you generally try to bring maybe 25, 30 to a meeting. Everyone is a weekly meeting where everybody pitches stories. Uh, I don't know what the, I don't know what the number is now, but we generally try to bring about 25 to 30 headlines. That's, that's just a monumental number of jokes when you're dealing with a, a significantly sized staff. It's a lot of jokes. We kind of operated, uh... And I imagine still do operate on a quantity makes quality uh, <laughs> system. Um, you know, you throw up things at the wall, something is going to stick. Um, I think the more ideas you pitch, the more likely it is just mathematically, statistically, the more likely it is you're going to get something funny. Um, and we try, we tried really hard not to be precious about it. And, you know, you don't want to walk into a meeting with five jewels that you're really attached to and then you find nobody likes them. You just you, you don't want to you want to be totally dispassionate about it. And the more ideas you have, the more the easier it is to do that. Well, what kind of films were you writing when you left The Onion? Uh, I left. Well, I left in 2003 and uh, on my tax on my tax return under profession, I write. I, for about six years, I was writing comedy writer, so I kind of got in the habit of looking at myself as a comedy writer. So when I left The Onion, I tried to write comedies, um, kind of in the Judd Apatow mold, you know, um, uh, not 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 lowbrow, but you know, uh, just good, solid quality Apatow style comedies. And I was I was pretty bad at it. I just for some reason it just never clicked. And I wrote script after script. And I found I was sort of writing with with the audience in mind. I was writing things that I thought would sell rather than things that were that turned me on. I don't know. They were all kind of uniformly mediocre. Uh, I got better at the craft of screenwriting, but but the actual scripts were didn't really get much more original. And then um, and then my breakthrough script was Big Fan, which at the time was called Paulo Fierro, um, and that was the script that kind of within Hollywood I I started getting a. Uh, known for and it circulated around uh and that script was not a comedy at least uh, well, i guess it's debatable still but uh but you know it's it's more of compared to the things i was writing which were more things that maybe adam mckay would direct it's more of it was more of some kind of a dark 70s uh scorsese you know kind of uh character drama did you feel ambivalent about the stuff you were writing when you were writing in the sort of commercial comedy genre? Yeah, I was definitely ambivalent, and I was, I was writing. I think, I think uh, there was a certain cynicism that I, I was writing what I thought. I was writing kind of down to my imagined audience. Um, I, I, I probably, on some subconscious level, had this attitude like, you know, uh, th- this is the kind of junk that Hollywood. Uh, eats up and loves and and I'm I'm just going to give them what they want and and it kind of caught me by surprise that what I wrote was actually not that good um <laughs> and I think it was because I wrote it from uh, I I think any screenwriter even if you're writing crap I think I think the crappy movies are, are even the even the worst movies 
uh, and the lowest of lowbrow comedies are, are written from kind of a sincere place. What what I see is kind of you know being a comedy snob myself. What, what I see is kind of lame movies that the people who write them really think they're funny. Did you feel like a comedy snob at the time? Was there a time when you considered, oh gosh, I should try and write the next, um, oh super bad, rather than I should write the next um, uh, w- one like, of those movies that uh, Adam Sandler puts all his friends in, like White Chicks or yeah, well I, that's yeah. What was that one that had uh, John Lovitz and uh, David Spade and they were on a softball team together? That's what I'm thinking of. Joe Dirt. No, I think it was they were on a softball team. This is a real movie. I'm not making this up. And I think I maybe believe you. I, be- I think maybe John Hader from Napoleon Dynamite was also on the oh, softball the team. Oh, the Benchwarmers. There you go. Everyone in the audience is probably screaming that out in their cars. <laughs> no, they're not. This is public radio. <laughs> uh, the, no, everyone. The Benchwarmers. They're of screaming I'm out Truffaut, Truffaut. David Spade and John Hader probably about five years ago. Yeah. Well, I knew I didn't want to write... Being a comedy snob, I knew I didn't want to write like bench warmers, um, real stupid comedies. I, and 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 you know, in my mind, there were those dumb comedies, and then there were quality comedies, which I which I enjoy watching. You know, more things like you know Anchorman or uh, or Zoolander or um, Knocked Up or Forty Year Old Virgin. You know, uh, things that I I like and respect, but are still clearly comedies. So I aimed I aimed to write those types of movies and and uh, and it just wasn't I don't know it just never clicked so so then um, I guess the the, the the I went from I knew I didn't want to write white chicks I tried to write knocked up and then I realized what I was better at writing was you know um, king of comedy or uh, I, 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 I went from being a, a Judd Apatow wannabe, and now I'm probably a Paul Thomas Anderson wannabe. What was the... How did you realize that? Uh, well, I realized it by by not going anywhere with these scripts. And then, and then I had... And then I, one day I had this idea for a script about a sports fan. Um, I had this idea for a sports fan who gets beaten up by his favorite player. Uh, and I, and the way I imagined it was not a comedy. And th- at first, my uh, my instinct said, "Don't write this because it's not a comedy." But then I said, "Wait a minute, maybe let's just try it." And then I and then I wrote it. Uh, and it, I wrote it during a, a, while I was still at the Onion, during one of our uh, one of our holiday breaks. We have like two weeks off at the, at the during December every year. And instead of going away, um, I just locked myself in my room. And for the for the two weeks, I just wrote and wrote and. Um, and when the two weeks were over, I had, I had the script or the first draft of a script, uh, and, and I looked at it and I said, this is actually pretty good. And it's not, uh, it's not a comedy and, and, you know, this kind of light bulb, a light bulb went off, I guess. When you've been making your living, um, uh, at least as a screenwriter by doing things like, um, you know, adding jokes to Night at the Museum 2 or, or whatever it is. Um, what was the reaction you got from uh, from your agent and your contacts and the people that you worked with when you came to them and said, I, I wrote this script, it's kind of like Taxi Driver? They liked it. I don't know. There wasn't any real resistance because it was, uh, I mean, at the risk of sounding immodest, it was clearly a better script than anything else I'd ever written. So they, they had the wisdom to, uh, you know, embrace it. It um what happened to the script after you wrote it? I wrote it uh in 2000 probably 2001. Uh I kind of released it into the 
into the Hollywood ether, and it and it circulated around. Uh, um, you know, I submitted it to my agent, and then inevitably it kind of gets around town, and it made the blacklist. Uh, I think in 2002, which is that this the secret list of top unproduced screenplays, and it and it started to develop a reputation. And it started to find its way to different directors. And the first director who contacted me about it, who was interested in possibly making it, was was Darren Aronofsky. And that's actually how I met Darren. Um, and we got together for coffee, and we talked about it, and he really liked it. And, and uh, for about a year, it was in his possession, as you know, on his plate of things to develop uh, with an eye toward directing. And we had a few meetings and uh, talked about different directions to take the story. And eventually he wound up not directing it. I think it was in pre-production on The Fountain at the time. So he let it go. And then a few months later, I, th- I don't remember the exact chronology, but probably a few months later he called me up and said he's got another idea for another movie that he'd like to talk to me about that he thinks I might be a good fit for, which was The Wrestler. And he said to me, you know, how would you like to write a movie set in the world of professional wrestling or about a former pro wrestler? Uh, and I immediately responded to that idea. Let's hear a clip from The Wrestler. You have a beer with me? Uh, I've got to get going. One beer. I really... I got, a, I got a kid. You have a kid? Well, what do you have, a boy or a girl? Boy. Jameson. How old? Nine. Hold on. Wait a second. I want you to give this to your little guy. It's a, it's a Randy the Ram action figure. <laughs> Tell him not to lose it. It's a three hundred dollar collector's item. Really? No. <laughs> Come on, hey, one beer. Okay. <laughs> It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rom Siegel, director of the movie Big Fan, in which an enthusiastic football fan is beaten to a pulp by his favorite player. The former Onion editor also wrote last year's The Wrestler after he was approached to do so by director Darren Aronofsky. What did he bring you, um, and what did you generate for The for Wrestler? The wrestler? Uh, he said he... Uh had this idea kicking around. He, he Apparently, when he was back in film school in the 90s sometime, he had a little notebook, and he kept uh, lists of, of ideas for things he'd like to make a movie about. And one of the things he always had on his list was a movie about a pro wrestler. He felt that there had been all these serious... Boxing was always treated seriously in movies, and there were all these, you know great classic boxing movies that were intense, dark character studies about boxers, and there had never been uh, a serious movie done about a wrestler. It was always kind of treated as a joke, uh, and he thought that this would be a really interesting world for uh, for a you know, penetrating character study about, a, about, a, about an old-time wrestler. Um, and then we went to a few shows together. Um, we knew it wasn't going to be about a WWF wrestler. For reasons legal and and creative, we we wanted it to be about a kind of a more washed up guy. And there's this whole indie circuit out there that most people don't even know existed exists. Um, you know, any Friday night you go to Passaic, New Jersey, or just kind of outer outer you know someplace in Queens uh, at VFW halls and church basements. There are these wrestling shows, and usually it's kind of weekend warrior type wannabe guys who are sort of fulfilling a fantasy. But then they usually have one former 
often they'll try to get like a former pro wrestler, a name guy to, to be the headliner. And a lot of the old 80s wrestlers, I, w- I was, as a kid, I was a wrestling fan, not crazy hardcore or anything, but you know, growing up in the, I was a teenager in the 80s and it was hard not to, you know, at least be exposed to It was hard to not to be I, a know, Hulkamaniac. I, yeah, I was probably, I was probably 15 at the peak of Hulkamania, and, you know, I went to a few shows at Nassau Coliseum. I grew up on Long Island, and I went to a few shows, and I saw... So I have fond memories of, and I remember vividly, you know, uh, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and Coco Beware and Big Boss Man and, you know, goes on and on. So so the idea of doing a movie set about one of those guys really appealed to me. Um, and and we'd go... So I went to a few of these shows, and I'd, you'd see Bam Bam Bigelow and Nikolai Volkov and Tito Santana and all these old wrestlers who I remember as a kid were, you know, playing the garden, and now they're playing, you know, some Latin disco in, uh, you know, uh, Passaic, New Jersey, or, or uh, you know, some high school gym out on in Suffolk, Long Island or something. Um, and, they, and they all were really... Um, it's, they were all kind of sad, and, you know... Their, their knees were battered and their hip, they needed hip replacement surgery and they didn't have health insurance. And, but they still really, uh, so it was sad, but it was also sort of, um, sort of awesome because they loved, they still all clearly got a thrill out of wrestling, even though it was only for maybe a hundred people instead of 20,000. So it was just a great, I, I immediately, as soon as I started going to these shows, I said, I knew that I wanted to write a movie about it but but there was nothing more specific than that it's interesting to me that you uh mentioned that aronofsky had said you know there's all these great movies about boxing and and none about wrestling boxing is um a sport where you know very conveniently for for drama's sake there is this really elemental battle at the end Mm -hmm. uh where you know two people literally have a conflict and uh you know there's literally someone comes out of it the winner um wrestling is is a lot more complicated being is that it's a it's essentially a performance right how did that fact that wrestling is a performance make you think differently about the structure of the film and uh what was important about the film? Well, because wrestling is quote unquote fake, you can't really write it the way you would. You, you can't just replace boxing with wrestling and have it work. Uh, because, like you said, boxing, there is actually inherent drama is in there's inherent drama in who will win a boxing match. You know, so so the drama had to come from someplace other than the actual outcome of the match. You know, uh, will rock, you know. I mean, Rocky, the climate, you know, the, the ending of Rocky is incredibly suspenseful because it ends with a boxing match where him and Apollo Creed are, you know, bashing each other's brains in and, and the actual outcome of that match is is suspenseful, you know. Um, when when Randy the Ram Robinson is, uh, who Mickey Rourke plays, is, is wrestling the Ayatollah, it's, it's not a true, it's not that same kind of sports, traditional sports movie climax because it doesn't, it's it's even if it's pre it's sort of predetermined who's going to win and it doesn't even really matter who's going to win you know in wrestling you know d- doesn't really have any actual uh you know impact so the uh the drama had to come from just this guy's life and it just couldn't which is a good thing for it because we were forced to we couldn't just fall back on sort of sports movie clichés of of uh you know he either winds up you know triumphantly victorious, carried off the field, you know, 
on 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 his teammates' shoulders, so to speak, or or uh, or he's you know defeated, but you know wins some kind of moral victory. It, it, it's less a story about a an athlete. Well, it is a story about an athlete, but it's really a story about a performer more. You know, it it, it kind of has the structure of a of a movie, maybe about a a dancer, say, if that makes sense. Here's another clip from the wrestler. I just want to tell you, I'm the one who is supposed to take care of everything. I'm the one who is supposed to make everything okay for everybody. It just didn't work out like that. And I left. I left you. You never did anything wrong. I used to try to Oh, forget about you. <laughs> I used to try to pretend that you didn't exist. But I can't. You're my girl. You're my little, you're my little girl. And now I'm an old broken down piece of meat. And I'm alone. When we come back, we hear about Siegel's directorial debut with Big Fan. Stick around. It's the Sound of Young America from PRI, Public Radio International. Production of the Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. This September, MaximumFun.org is headed east. You can check out the Sound of Young America Live, our live stage show, in Philadelphia, September 16th, as part of the Philly Fringe. It's a live Sound of Young America program played out before your very eyes with music, comedy, and interviews. Our guests on the Philadelphia show include the Spinto Band, comics artist Charles Burns, the director of the Mutter Museum, and more. Then the next night, we'll be offering the freewheeling comedy of the Monsters of Podcasting. That's You Look Nice Today and our own Jordan Jesse Go. On the 18th, we'll be headed to New York for a live show at the Jerome L. Green Performance Space at WNYC. My guests include Scott Adsit from the NBC Comedy 30 Rock, musicians Nellie Mackay and Andrew W.K., and much more. Saturday, September 19th, the Monsters of Podcasting hit the UCB Theater in New York. For more information and tickets, visit MaximumFun.org. Hey, what's happening? Mike Schmidt, host of the 40-Year-Old Boy Podcast. Available on iTunes and at MikeSchmidtComedy.com. What's the show about, you ask? I can hear you asking it. That's right. You know what the show's about? Me hearing people talking in their houses as they play me. That's right. Well, if you're playing my podcast or you hear my voice, please know that I can hear you at all times. I'm tapped in like that. I'm kind of like the dog whisperer, but via podcasts. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. So go to MikeSchmidtComedy.com. Go to iTunes and subscribe to the 40-Year-Old Boy Podcast. It's no uh, uh, Sound of Young America radio show but we do use microphones it's the sound of young america i'm jesse thorne my guest is rob siegel the director of the film big fan in which Patton oswalt playing a new york giants football fan and regular caller to sports radio is beaten up by his favorite player on the team in big fan uh Patton oswalt uh, a frequent past guest on this show plays a um a huge new york giants fan who's very deeply immersed in the culture of sports talk radio. Um, 
I don't know, folks out there, you know, they probably are, are too busy listening to uh, the Sound of Young America on their local public radio station to switch over to their local sports talk station. But in in sports talk radio, there are, um, even more so, I think, than in any other form of radio, there's a sort of ecosystem of uh, callers and personalities that revolve around the shows. Yeah, it's a little, there's a little mini community of, of callers. Uh, you know, there's Joe from Flushing and Vinny from Rego Park. And, and if you listen for, for any stretch of time, you'll, you'll start to hear a lot of the same guys and they become familiar and they sort of become friends. I still remember but, as a kid, I used to listen a lot to KNBR in San Francisco. There was a regular uh-huh. caller named Johnny the Gout Man. <laughs> Johnny the Gowman. Yeah, every I mean every station in every city has, you know, there was Doris from uh there was last year you know how the New York Times does an annual um the lives they lived kind of obituary issue. They, there was last year there was a woman named Doris. She's sort of a classic caller. Doris from Rigo Park, I think. Um who who was was a big regular on WFAN, which is the station I grew up listening to. But yeah, they're they're, they're all over the did place. Did you did you listen to a lot of sports talk radio at some point in your life? Yeah, when I was a kid, I listened every night. I, that's that was the kind of the origin for this movie. Uh, I listened to WFAN, which at the time was the only. It was the first. It was the first sports radio uh, station in the country. And in early to mid eighties, when I was a little kid, I would listen. Uh, uh, every night I would go to bed, turn out the lights, and then turn on the radio and, and just kind of lie there in the dark and and listen f- way past my bedtime. I would listen to the, the uh, Steve Summers show, which was uh, schmoozing with Steve Summers, if anyone knows him. Uh, and I just, just, I don't know, there was something magical about it. Uh, um, I, I just loved eavesdropping on these people's lives. And, and you kind of couldn't help but, listening to them, you kind of couldn't help but wonder, you know, what they what their lives were like and what their rooms looked like and what they were like off the air. Um, and that, that was the, the genesis of, of the movie. Did you ever call in yourself? No, I was never one of those. Uh, you, you heard it all the time, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller is the, uh, is the phrase. Uh, I always just listened. I never, I never even was tempted to call. I was, I think I was, I would have been scared. I called in once. I remember, this is a long time ago, I'm realizing, because I remember the subject of the call was whether the San Francisco Giants should sign the uh, uh, one-handed uh, uh, Jim Abbott, yeah, Jim Abbott, yeah, the one-handed yeah. California, then California, now Anaheim Angels star, Jim right. Abbott, and I think I was against it. You were opposed. Now, I wasn't prepared for how terrifying it was. It's yeah. I I just didn't want to break that wall. I I just wanted this just to keep, you know, stay anonymous. I went to see Big Fan with my wife. And we had very different reactions to it. I think essentially because we had very different reactions to the central premise, um, which is a man who is who has built his life around sports. And she said to me, you know, I can't imagine caring about anything uh, that much besides maybe my family. And I wonder if you have ever, whereas I... Being a, a nerd, have cared about many things. At least, are you what kind of nerd are you? I was a. I'm a. Are you comic book I'm not nerd? a comic book nerd. I, I'm a. I'm a. Uh, I'm a lapsed baseball nerd. Um, okay. I'm a comedy nerd, and uh, those are my two main nerddoms. Yeah, I would say minor comedy, probably comedy and sports. Right. So 
could you relate to caring that much about something that yeah well not to that extreme uh degree but but absolutely i mean i i think most people i feel sad for your wife <laughs> no uh i i uh i think most people can if they can't relate to it in terms of sports fandom they can they, you know there certainly are um many many people out there who are way way too into uh you know whether it's you know, I mean, God, anything, some cooking or uh, Michael Jackson or what, you know, whatever it is, there, there, there are no shortage of things to be obsessive about. And, and most people are, I think most people are obsessive about something, particularly in the Internet. You know, the, the Internet has certainly fed that. I mean, it's just a giant repository of obsessions. Uh, so I think hopefully a lot enough people will relate to it to uh, make it a, a, a success. I don't uh I don't want to get spoiler e in my line of questioning but um I I think it's safe to say that this isn't a a film that's about a traditional redemption um no. it, it's not about someone uh going through a crucible and emerging as a new person No I I hate those Yeah wh- why why do you hate those and and why isn't it that why in fact is it it's it strikes me almost the opposite it's a, it's almost about someone uh going through a crucible and and realizing that uh they're the person they want to be Yeah which I would say the same thing is true probably for the wrestler. I, I think I may have written the same movie twice. Uh, they're both about they're both about guys on the fringes of sports who are way way into something that other people don't particularly respect and the world wants them to change and and they, all they want to do is kind of keep doing what they love and they're both they're both fundamentally happy. That might sound like a weird word to use for these guys, but but they both uh really get get the satisfaction you know that they want out of life from 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 wrestling and and uh, rooting for the giants. Is that the case? I, I'm su- I'm I'm almost surprised to, to hear you say that about Patton's character in this movie. I mean, you you open the movie with with a very sort of long, slow, sad shot of the parking garage where he works as an attendant, and there's a there's a little scenelet where somebody drives by and. Uh, Somebody's a yeah. Somebody's a dick to him. Yeah, that's my brother. That's my brother-in-law. <laughs> in the in the world of the film, or a- acting as a jerk. No, my actual actual brother-in-law. Um, I'm surprised to hear you say that, that you think he's fundamentally happy. Uh, maybe I'm choosing not to go too deeply into his psyche, but he certainly is a guy who has something in life that he's really, really into that gives him satisfaction, that keeps him busy on a you know every day he makes his calls. He calls in every night after work to the sports radio station. Um, I guess it depends how you define happiness, but uh, I think he thinks he's happy. He doesn't walk around. You know, he's not a, he's not a guy who walks around in, I think, a depressed funk. I think he walks around thinking about his next call, and he's kind of psyched, and he has things in his life to look forward to. They happen to revolve around people, you know, that have nothing to do with him that don't know he's alive. So you could you could argue that that's pathetic that that the thing that gives him satisfaction is not something that he has an actual real life relationship with you know which is his his team and you know fandom is kind of a one way being being a being an obsessive fan or, or a fan of any kind is kind of a one way street the the thing you're really into doesn't know you exist um so you might choose to view that as sad but um 
But I don't think he's sad. I think he loves it, and he's always thinking about who they're playing next week, and he's got his hopes and dreams for the team, which by extension are his own hopes and dreams. So I don't, I don't think, I, I don't think I presented him. You know, I guess it's open to interpretation, but I didn't intend to present him as this pathetic guy that we laugh at and pity. I, res- I have a, I have a, a, a real respect for him, and for anyone who has something that they care about. Here's another clip from Big Fan. Let's go to my boy Paul in Staten Island. He always brings the leverage. What's on your mind, brother? Hey, Sports Talk, how you doing? Um, I'm just calling to say I can't wait for this Sunday when we finally shut these Philly clowns up once and for all. I can't tell you how sick I am of Philadelphia Phil and all these cheesesteak bozos going on about Brian Westbrook this and how we can't stop their passing game. Are you joking? You put you put the tiniest bit of pressure on McNabb. That guy crumbles like a cookie. It's not easy hitting a receiver. It's not easy hitting a receiver laid out on your back. So listen up, Philadelphia Phil, and all the rest of you brotherly love jabronis who've been who've been talking smack on all week on this show. Get out your forks because you're gonna be eating your words big time. I love his passion. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, sports dog. You're the man. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Rob Siegel, is the director of the film Big Fan, in which Patton Oswalt plays a super-duper-duper sports enthusiast. I want to ask you about casting Patton Oswalt in the lead role. This is a guy who is one of the, certainly one of the funniest guys in America, in my opinion, a spectacular stand-up comedian. I think he's the funniest. Okay, well, I might say Louis C.K. I might be inclined to say Louis C.K., but it would be a tough call. Okay. Um, I don't agree. <laughs> I've heard a lot of people feel that way. So, um, so uh, uh, Pat Oswalt certainly a spectacularly hilarious stand-up comic, but also yes. a guy with a very limited acting resume. He was uh, third banana on uh, the very successful sitcom The King of Queens for many years. He was the lead in uh, the Pixar movie Ratatouille, um, mm-hmm. and and he's done a lot of bit. Uh, you know Reno nine one one. Yeah, I was about to say, and and after that, you 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 run pretty quickly to like uh, he was a guy in Balls of Fury, and I remember observe and report. He, he was, was an MC in uh, that Starsky and Hutch remake, if I remember. But correctly. he was also in he was also in Magnolia. That's true. Um, the, uh, but I think I think essentially you. You must have picked him very specifically for this role. He wasn't just the best. Uh, he, he wasn't just best the available. best known person who um, who was willing no, to deign to do with, your film. I could have gone with bigger names. So, what was it about Patton Oswalt as a performer um, that made you want him to be your lead? I just felt he was perfect for the role. Uh, he just looks the part. He just is that part. He's totally believable. Um, I think I think casting is about ninety percent of acting. So if if you have somebody who just is utterly believable, um, visually, personality wise, for a role, you're 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 almost all the way there, right? Right off the now, bat. Now I'm I don't uh, know Pat. I'm not very close with Patton, but I know Patton I, a little bit. I'm pretty sure he's not a sports fan. He's not, but he understands very well the psychology of nerdy obsession. Uh, he just has to take, uh, you know, w- you know, uh, just take whatever rant he might give about uh, the original Avengers 
and just, uh, transfer just replace to, uh, every instance of Giants. Hawkeye with Phil Sims. Exactly. I'll trust that's an accurate. Uh, <laughs> yes. I don't know enough about Hawkeye, but uh, yeah, Electra equals uh, Carl. Something Banks. about Dave Meggett. Dave Meggett. Good. Look Thank at you. That. Thank you very much. I have run out of Avengers, though, off the top of my head. Hawkman? No, Hawkman's a whole other thing. Gleek? <laughs> uh, um, okay, Gleek, sure. No, I, I, I don't Gleek. know. I know a little bit about Zan and Jaina. I don't know comics that well, but uh, but but he certainly knows knows what it's like to be an obsessive fan, and, and I don't think anybody knows that psychology better than he does. And and I know he can certainly go dark. Um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of his comedy is, is just incredibly hateful and misanthropic <laughs> and dark. But the great thing about it and the, the key thing about it for me is that he doesn't – it doesn't rub off on him. You know, he still is – he still somehow – he can say the most vicious, disgusting thing, and uh, and he still just – this cuddly little huggable guy, you know. People just love Patton. He has a, he doesn't just have a likability. He has a lovability factor. He's just lovable and huggable, and and he's got a great face. Uh, you know, I knew I wanted to do a lot of close-ups and of his face, and he's just got a real interesting mug. He's described you know? himself often as looking kind of like a butch lesbian. He said, right, right. I've heard that. I think it's yeah. If you put a pair of overalls on him, <laughs> um, he's got he's got the look. But he's, uh, you know, I, I wanted somebody who could kind of go dark and and be a little antisocial and strange and not, but not be off-putting and not lose the audience. You know, it was pretty, it was important to me that the audience still, I somehow identified with this guy, or or just that it was important that the audience liked him, and I, and um, and that's a hard. There were a lot. There are there are a lot of other schlubby. Forgive me, Pen. You know, short, pudgy. Anti George Clooney's out there who who don't have that quality of 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 likability that he has. People just something about him. People just really root for him. Do you admire the character? Yeah, I do. I I have I have respect and admiration for him. I didn't want this to be one of. The, I was very careful. Hopefully, I succeeded, but I absolutely did not want this to be one of those comedy. You know, one of those comedies of condescension where. Uh, where the audience is laughing at the character. Um, you know, there may be moments when it comes close, but I, cl- I really always wanted to be on the right side of that fence and, and be laughing with him and relating to him. You know, even if he's doing things that are kind of weird or sad, I, I, I just don't like those movies where you feel like the director is using his main character as kind of a punching bag and there's sort of this icky bullying quality there's a lot of that nowadays particularly when it's in movies like this where superficially your character is not exactly a winner you know and and uh, i i like this guy and i like i like uh randy the ram robinson um you know they they may be regarded as losers by society but i i just i really like them and admire them because they have something that they that they care about well, Rob, thank you so much for taking this time to be on the show. It was, it was really great to have you. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Rob Siegel is the writer and director of the new film Big Fan. It opens August 28th in New York and Philadelphia and then in platformed release across America by God's graces. Uh, you can find out more about screenings in other places at bigfanmovie.com. 
That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music provided by Dan Wally along with the rest of our music. Our editor is Nick White. Our intern is John Kim. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. And if you have thoughts about the show, you can always email them to me. My personal email address, yes, this is my real email address, is jesse at MaximumFun.org. J-E-S-S-E at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America. Our interview with Rob Siegel was recorded at the studios of the Radio Foundation in New York with engineer Robert Ald.